Welcome to the Science of Sex. Today, I've got an incredible episode for you guys. I sat down and had a conversation with Dr. Nicole Prousey of UCLA and founder of Liberos. Liberos LLC is an independent research institute. Liberos's mission is to discover the health benefits of sexual stimulation. Today, we discuss the myth of porn addiction. Unbeknownst to many, porn actually isn't addictive, yet people all over the world seem to believe it is. If you did a Google search for porn addiction, you would find a ton of websites talking about how porn is brutally addictive, how it's ruining lives, how people just can't stop, how people are skipping out on work to stay home and watch porn, and how it's causing health problems in otherwise healthy people. You might find research that says that it causes erectile dysfunction in otherwise healthy young men, or research that says that it somehow deregulates your dopamine system, downregulating it so you don't have the same dopamine response as a normal human being. This research is bunk. It's manufactured, it's lies, and it's misrepresentations. The organizations that you'd find, organizations like Fight the New Drug or Covenant Eyes or NoFap or Reboot, aren't actually scientific institutions. They're designed to look like it. They're designed to look like organizations who care about public health, but they don't. They're actually religious institutions. These institutions are mostly propped up by the Mormon church, but other churches are involved as well. It's incredible to me that these institutions, which are church-based institutions, have managed to get so many people under their sway, including people who are usually pretty antithetical to the church's values, people like feminists. I know a lot of feminists who believe that porn is addictive and destructive and that it ruined their marriage. While I don't doubt that some people have bad moral habits when it comes to porn viewing or sexual behavior, I think everybody knows that. The question is, is it truly addictive? The science resoundingly says no. During this interview, I asked Dr. Prousey flat out, is porn addictive? The answer is pretty clear. First, let me just say, I know porn is a touchy subject. On the one hand, people love it. It's everywhere. It's immediately accessible. All you have to do is hop online and go to pornhub.com and boom, there you go. Free porn, endless free porn. It's in some ways furthered along the sexual revolution, but there's a dark side to that. Now we're starting to get married. We're starting to settle down. People are getting into relationships and how they feel about their own or their partner's porn viewing habits isn't always good. It causes a lot of conflicting beliefs and conflicting desires. People get some pretty uncomfortable feelings and we need to be mindful of that. But again and again, the research shows Porn is not addictive. And much of what you hear about it completely destroying people's lives is a myth. Over the past 10 years, these movements have gained incredible momentum. So it's really important that we discuss it and get down to the bottom of this so that people can understand so they don't live in fear of a boogeyman that isn't actually real. Since our conversation gets into the weeds of the science a little bit, I decided to give this little overview so that people understand where we're coming from and have a richer understanding of the science that's discussed. 
Over the past 10 years, anti-porn movements have cropped up all over the internet. Fight the new drug, Covenant Eyes, NoFap and Reboot, they're everywhere. If you do a search on pornography effects, they're sure to crop up in the first few results. What a lot of people don't understand is that a search engine's job is not to find you answers. Yet, how many people do you know who Google the answer to the questions they have? Search engines have absolutely zero responsibility to bring you accurate information. Their job is to find a website. That's it. It doesn't matter how accurate or inaccurate the information is. All they're trying to do is find you a website that works with their technologies and looks good. That's it. Groups like NoFap and Reboot pretend that they're helping people overcome the porn addiction that doesn't actually exist. It's almost like a multi-level marketing scheme or something. They sell you a fake diagnosis and then they treat that. So they get you on both sides. Almost all of these places require you to pay sometimes exorbitant sums of money in order to be treated for something that doesn't even exist. Most of these organizations are based in Utah. That means, yes, they come from the Mormon church. That's not the only reason I say that. I've done the research here on the science of sex. I've published about it several times. Behind the scenes, if you go look up many of the members in the Mormon church and many of the people who are putting out this research, you'll find that it's often the same exact people. One guy, Donald Hilton, is a doctor. He popularized the idea that pornography is causing otherwise healthy young men to have erectile dysfunction, a claim that's been debunked time and time again by Dr. Prousey herself, who actually has a hands-on lab and studies people's sexual response in real time. Dr. Hilton also published a book that proposes the solution to porn addiction causing erectile dysfunction and other health problems in otherwise healthy young men. Do you know what his solution is? That's right, Jesus Christ, as understood by the Mormon church. It's all so absurd, so laughable. But it's also quite sad because so many people are actually harmed by this kind of disinformation and lies. It's a campaign to make people feel bad about their sexuality, to cause questions in their minds, and to make them uncomfortable when they view sex or pornography. As I said, Many of these organizations are based in Utah, and they're funded almost exclusively by the church. These organizations, as well as their members, don't just stop at porn. They also fund anti-women's movements and anti-LGBT legislation. They're not anti-porn so much as anti-sex, or at least any kind of sex that doesn't fit with their religious narrative of how they think sex should be, which is extremely limited. Let's talk about some of the claims that people make about porn addiction. One claim that you'll see a lot is that 30% of the internet is pornography. This is just totally not true. At one point, it was in the 1990s, back when they didn't have search engines, YouTube didn't exist, we didn't even have social media. You could do only a few things on the web. You could check the news, send an email, maybe shop on Amazon if you knew what it was, or watch porn. During those days, porn made up a substantial amount of internet use. But since then, the internet has grown into something much more vibrant with many more options for people to choose from 
And now porn only makes up about 4% of the internet. Unlike the claims of these institutions that say that it's one third of the internet or more. They also like to claim that 88% of porn depicts violence against women. There was one study produced in a publication, a scientific journal, or what looks like a scientific journal called Violence Against Women. And this study included any kind of violent act, even consensual. So something as innocent or benign as consensual light hair pulling was included as violence against women. Obviously, this kind of research is absolutely bunk. The worst of all, and probably the most widespread, is the belief that porn is addictive like a drug. Flat out, it's not. And I think anybody who takes a few minutes and thinks about it quickly realizes that even if you get a very slight boost in dopamine from watching porn, you also get a slight boost of dopamine from simply seeing a sandwich or other food. It can't possibly compare to the sheer amount of dopamine poured in the brain when somebody takes a drug like cocaine or methamphetamine. Undoubtedly. We know that the effects of methamphetamine and when you watch pornography are completely different. Now, some of you watching may think that you have a porn watching problem. I hope you come to this with an open mind. We're not here to make fun of you or tell you that you're wrong. That's absolutely not our intention. My intention is for you to have the best facts. And even if that means that Dr. Prousey says that something I said is wrong, as you'll hear me say in the interview, feel free to correct me. But these are the facts and I want you to have them. If you do believe that you have a problem watching porn, as many people do, just know that research has shown time and time again that people who believe they have a porn watching problem usually watch an average amount of porn and often even less porn than people in the same peer group. The leading hypothesis for why people believe that they have a porn addiction is that people have created social constructs in their own minds that have created internal conflicts about what porn viewing habits should look like. It's no surprise that a lot of the people who claim to have a porn addiction also subscribe to evangelical or other religious beliefs that are very sex shy or sex negative. They subscribe to religions that are very controlling and strict about sex or even secular attitudes as we discuss. Whenever these people fill out questionnaires or do research with researchers, they say that they have a porn addiction. Yet, time and time again, the research shows that they watch an average amount of porn, even though they think they have a porn addiction. This is key to understanding why so many people believe that porn addiction is a real thing. And another thing is that, honestly, porn can kind of make us uncomfortable sometimes right? You encounter a certain type of sexuality that might make you a little squeamish. It happens a lot. And porn is a product to make people respond a certain way in order to maximize profits. As a business, this is reprehensible. But it's also the same business model that's shared by countless other companies, from social media to you name it. Anyways, I hope you enjoyed the interview. Thanks for watching. So, Nicole, welcome to The Science of Sex, and why don't you introduce yourself for the audience? 
Thanks so much for having me on. I, as you have described, <laughs> kind of have a background in broadly what is clinical science and mm-hmm. clinical science is just the study of treatments. In my case, I focused in neuroscience and statistics. So those are the methods I use. And then I focus on reward processing broadly. So that means things like uh, doing things that are pleasurable and fun. And that often happens in substance abuse (laughs) problems and also some fun behaviors like gambling and sex and internet use. So that's how I ended up where I am. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Because I had the notes, um, some extra questions that we'll we'll get to that in, in a little bit. Um, Part of the reason I invited you on here is the anti-porn movements. Um, They've gained a lot of momentum over the past few years, maybe even a decade. Um, And, you know, just like full disclosure, you know, many years ago, I published a piece and I wanted to detail the entire history of, of porn use, you know, and I mean, I went all the way back to the Venus figurines and the possibility that, you know, these old statues that are, you know, 300,000 to 500,000 years old, I think is the oldest one, uh, might have been at least somewhat erotic. There's some debate. It might have been fertility statues. And I kind of went all the way up through ancient Greece to Rome to all these different societies. And then when I got to modern day, I said, hey, you know, uh, now we have rapid fire porn and, you know, digital and everything is, you know, so accessible and we weren't built for this. And I believed it, too. And I said, people are starting to get addicted. And it's one of the very, very, I think there's only one other piece that I've ever written that I've had to go back and edit and say, okay, I got this wrong. And there's a disclaimer at the top now, Um, because I found your research and I found uh, David Lay's research and a ton of other research. And I was like, this belief is so incredibly widespread. Um, So what do you think the background is? And, um, you know, how did all of this come to be? (laughs) <laughs> in 20 seconds or less? No. Um, so I think there are lots of uh, medical historians, historians of science who can do a much better job than I can of really going back, you know, to the cave drawings <laughs> to characterize some of those. But even modern day, we are still writing about what constitutes pornography. What do we count as pornography? Is it things that have the intent to arouse? And in that case, that's super broad, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. my all kinds of things. Do we need to be more specific? Does it need to be a certain level of explicitness or detail before we can count it? And so we're not even sure where to draw that line and write quite a lot about you know how we define it, what we want to call that. And uh, the, mo- the more recent history is the biggest adoption of pornography, that is the biggest jump in people viewing actually occurred with VHS tapes. Mm. So as soon as people could view privately in their home, it suddenly became a lot more intriguing than having to go to a theater and watch it and either masturbate in the theater or try and remember, and, you know, have it uh, in the, the colloquial spank bank uh, to take home. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. you know, viewing had changed a lot at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the biggest jump by far. Mm-hmm. And so now uh, we don't have longitudinal data that really tell us like exactly how things have changed. And the other data we're really missing is, you know, how people view when they have this access. So we have some sense that people scroll to the good part, uh, <laughs> that they go to intercourse sections. Um we have some sense that people may have favorite sites, like they tend to view a site that they like. It's not that they go to Google, you know, like some of these 
studies have done and type in uh, naked girls. That's just not, I think, a common strategy, but we don't know a lot about how people are consuming exactly. And that's actually really important for understanding what the impacts might be. You know, if you're just going to your favorite thing every time and your favorite section, uh, does that really look like some of the research on searches for sex on Google? And I don't know that it does. We may not be doing a good job yet of capturing kind of what modern day porn viewing looks like. Interesting. Very interesting. I did not know that, that VHS was the, uh, you know, when things took off. Um, so as far as the kind of uh, anti-porn movement is concerned, my understanding, and feel free to correct me, you know, if, if I get anything wrong that you know of, um, but it seems like over the past decade, anti-porn movements have cropped up and they've kind of been initially led by the church, particularly the Latter-day Saints church. I did a lot of digging and research, and I've kind of found that there's a lot of big names who are kind of high up or, you know, somewhere in the Latter-day Saints Church, the Mormon Church, for those unaware, um, who are behind these movements like, you know, Fight the New Drug and Covenant Eyes, which, you know, they don't even try to hide their religious affiliation. But what it looks like to me is that you know, at least in the beginning, it was church organizations that would put up websites that looked scientifically legitimate. And it looks like there was a lot of bogus research too. Um, I found a lot of research from uh, a guy, Donald Hilton, and, um, you know, it, to me, it looked pretty questionable. Um, and I think, I think he was the one who, who came up with a lot of the, uh, the published research that said it causes erectile dysfunction, um, even in young men, and it causes you, you know, like, like your dopamine system to dysregulate or something like that, um, because you're getting a dopamine hit, which has kind of been a buzzword for the past, I don't know, two years, where everybody's afraid to use social media or afraid to use pornography because they don't want to get hooked and like mm -hmm. their dopamine system hooked. What can you tell us about the science? And because I, I, I believe you did some research with that, correct? Yes. So there are some early papers that uh, talked about these strange bedfellows of a collaboration between religious organizations and feminists. So within feminism, there are kind of two large camps that have been there for many decades, some that believe that pornography is empowering for women and allows them to have other job and economic opportunities and can be protected Others who feel that pornography is inherently harmful to women, uh, that they shouldn't be involved in it, shouldn't be forced to do it, and uh, sometimes even you know every woman in it's trafficked. And normally, feminists and people in the church do not get along on much. <laughs> they tend to have oppositional uh, goals, but in the case of pornography, some of their goals aligned. And so there were large feminist organizations who were working largely with Latter-day Saint uh, organizations and they were trying to coordinate legislative efforts to variously ban different types of websites or get them more regulated, uh, have them taken off the internet, uh, good luck. <laughs> and the more recent uh, phenomena I think has been in the last 10 years or so where a third group has come on board that is profiteers, people who seek to make money off of calling pornography uh, addictive or pathological. And if you just give me money, you know, I can cure you, I can fix it. So now their goals align with the goals of the Latter-day Saint and the uh, anti-porn feminists. And they're working together, a very strange <laughs> kind of coalition. 
has emerged. And the scholar at University of Nebraska-Lincoln named Kelsey Burke has written about this interesting transition where the church especially was clearly anti-masturbation when they started. Uh, that's also true of one of the large anti-porn organizations. Now, NoFap started as an anti-masturbation organization. Uh, but it seemed basically like they couldn't get traction that way. You know, it's just kind of an old fashioned idea. No one really believes that stuff anymore as well. They shouldn't. <laughs> and so they found by putting this in the verbiage of pornography, they could get people on the left and the right uh, who felt there were problems with pornography and kind of unite these groups. So my sense is it's fairly strategic. And that's kind of what Dr. Burke writes about is this transition to talking about pornography as a health issue. So uh, the Morality and Media uh, Organization had a website that was pornharms.com or .org, I'm not sure. And it doesn't identify that it's their website on it. And it lists all these scientific studies. It looks very real uh, and very convincing. And it's completely seems to be part of this church organization, but you wouldn't know it if you don't know the history. So, you know, you could say, well, it's, it's still supposed to be science, right? Like, you know, is it, but if they're cherry picking, uh, they would often summarize the results of a study, you know, that found uh, harms and benefits and leave off the benefits, just very uh, low level kinds of um, tactics like that. And we found more recently, there was a journal that is put out by a member of the board of morality and media that uh, was bizarre. <laughs> they just had some very strange content and we did a content analysis of it and have it under a second review right now. So hopefully it'll be out soon. But what we analyzed was whether or not this was a predatory journal. That is something they had kind of faked to look science, see? To be able to use these kind of languages around health and uh, public health and exactly the erectile dysfunction claims uh, appear in there many, many times. And these aren't supported by general science. But if you look at that journal, it looks like they are. And it looks like a real journal, but you wouldn't know unless somebody <laughs> does the analysis and says like, hey, this is not a real journal and this is what's really going on, but those analyses have to be done and, and all the problems and threats that come with that. So it's a challenging area to work in. Yeah, I'm sure. I was actually just thinking that because it seems like, okay. And again, I've covered, you know, the fight, the new drug covenant eyes, maybe a couple of others. So mostly the religious ones, um, the stuff that I'm seeing, you know, out of the, the no fat groups from your new research is, is still pretty brand new to me. So I won't speak on that, but it seems like, these organizations realize that the moral message, don't masturbate, don't have sex before marriage, those were very unpopular positions. So by rebranding it as a health concern, they mm -hmm. were really able to get a lot of people on board. And I think that's how they were able to thread that coalition of, you know, a certain segment of feminists. And, you know, you got kind of the manosphere bros out there and, you know, the, the self-help bros. And it kind of just worked out in this really mimetic way to where it's just such a super spreadable idea. Um, my hypothesis is that is because it touches on some things that make us uncomfortable, right? We're, we're now in a world where, you know, people are getting into marriages and how do we feel about our partner's porn habits? It might not be good. And so there's a lot of people with those unresolved or mixed feelings. 
And it seems that these organizations make these exaggerated claims about health. And um, they kind of, in a sense, you know, um, ask people to, to, to diagnose, you know, lay person diagnose other people with problems. It's kind of, they, they, they beg it, right? They're like, you know, somebody you know might have this and this and this. And mm-hmm. so I think that is why it has been absolutely just, you know, so, so, so mimetic and so spreadable. But um, I think the, the fundamental thing to remember is to me, it seems this is a religious mission not a scientific one. And yes, everything does look legitimately scientific. And some of the studies you can even find if you go to National Institute of Health, for instance, and you do a search and they'll pop up. Um, as far as the, the the dopamine research specifically, do you know like what that says? Is that something people really have to worry about? Do people really have to worry that I'm going to fry my dopamine system and never get it back or what, you know, what have you? No. So there was a study that specifically looked at potential downregulation issues with respect to pornography viewing and did not find evidence of downregulation. So the one study that directly confronted that hypothesis uh, did not find evidence for it. But the broader, just to step back and say like, well, what is dopamine doing? You know, how do we understand that? One of the very common things I see in this literature, um, in the public discussion, is when you climax, you get, you know, this rush of dopamine or you get a big ball of dopamine, you know, they use different language to describe it. Orgasm does not increase dopamine. Uh, That's been well replicated. Uh, Dopamine increases during sexual arousal. So it goes, you know, up and up during that process. Generally, I haven't seen a study that found a, a topping out. I assume it probably tops out at some point. Um, but those, uh, when we bring people into the lab, the stimulation periods are usually fairly short and that's a limitation of our laboratory work. Uh, but we've also done studies where we have people, uh, bring their partners in and they stimulate each other's genitals. Not many of those, <laughs> but a few studies. And we generally, uh, see that yes, like dopamine goes up when people are being stimulated. It does even more when the stimulus is more intense, so I, I can show you porn all day long and that will not be as intensive a stimulus as being with a partner. Mm. Uh, so it really, you know, the idea that it's going to replace or can condition uh, the dopamine away from that is quite unlikely because a partner presents a more intense stimulus, but also a qualitatively different stimulus. So the example I like to use for that is if you uh, stroke any part of your skin that has hair on it. Um, so these non-glabrous we call skin, they have something in them called C afferent fibers. Those only become active at moderate stroking by another bare hand. So it's like this very oh, wow. specific effect that seems wow. really tuned to say, hey, there's a sexual partner in front of you that you might want to think about responding to. It innervates areas of the brain that are associated with social interaction. Those aren't active during porn viewing. So there's really no amount of porn you could view, as far as we know, that mimics this part of partnered interaction. And so the likelihood that you can condition that, given the huge difference in intensity, uh, you know, the tremendous difference in the qualitative uh, nature of the stimulation, it's just, it's very unlikely. And I think we have now about 50 studies showing, you know, there's not erectile problems associated with porn viewing itself. It is erectile function problems are associated with shame and anxiety, which the, you know, that's always been the case. That's not new. 
And that also is probably why we see women who view more pornography actually having fewer sexual functioning problems. Like if you think that porn does this, it can't just do it in guys. It's got to be, you know, women have brains too. (laughs) And so it can't have oppositional effects in gender and call it a biological effect. Uh, It clearly just can't be the case. Interesting. And and if I'm not mistaken, you do have... let me know if I say this right. You do have the only like hands-on research facility. Is that the what you run? Like most studies, you know, if you go to a university for a study, they're not going to ask you if you can touch your partner's genitals or maybe even your own genitals. So in my understanding, a lot of the other research has been, you know, either inferred through animal studies or through questionnaires, but not actual physical contact. Is that accurate to say? Uh, With respect to looking at the effects of pornography, yes, our lab is the only one to do partnered work. There are a few uh, random labs across the years that have done partners or like they allow partners, but those are usually like studying orgasm physiology or they're looking at completely different issues um, Mm. related. So within pornography, absolutely. Our lab is the only one that's looked at people's exposure to pornography and their responsivity in the lab with a real partner. And I guess I could take the uh, excitement away and say, um, surprise, surprise, uh, people who view more pornography are also more excited to interact with their partner. They have higher sexual arousal, anticipating a partnered interaction, which is the opposite of what you would expect if porn had fried your dopamine or, you know, made you unable to respond. We, We see exactly the opposite in real partners. Yeah, it's so fascinating that you mentioned these, and that was that was your study for sure. That um, the study that you, or at least you were one of the, one of the people who worked on it, the one that that showed that you know, contrary to popular belief, that if people use pornography in their relationships, they tend to be more aroused, more excited, and have better mm-hmm. sex. Um, I, that's one of my favorites. And the other one about the hand touching was interesting because I, I did write a piece on um, erogenous zones because I wanted to find out what this was all about. Is it just a you know a hype thing? And yeah, that is fascinating that it's like, you know, we must have evolved some way to understand that hand touch in. It's so finely tuned. Yeah, Go it's ahead. great. Go ahead. Sorry. I say it's so finely tuned. It's crazy. Like this specific thing responds to this area of the brain. I I love that research. I wish I had time to get more into that in my own work. It's really cool. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So um, before I proceed any further, let me just ask you one question, just flat out. Is pornography addictive? No. Okay. So categorically, <laughs> just no, it's not. Um, no. And, and do you, you want to chime in or go ahead, any explanation and why it was left out of the DSM and things like that? Yeah, one thing a lot of the public doesn't understand is the goal of science is to find the best model of behavior. And in this case, the behavior is you walking up to me and saying, I have a problem viewing pornography. I say, all right, that's interesting. Let's try and understand your report to me. Why are you feeling that you have this problem? And there are a number of non-pathological explanations that are possible. And there are also some pathological explanations that are possible. So among the non-pathological, there are things like high sex drive. So just my drive is so high that it's distracting from my work. My partner's annoyed. <laughs> you know, uh, there's a discrepancy in our drive. Uh, another non-pathological would be a religious or conservative upbringing. So my sex is actually a very common amount or a normal amount, but I feel very shameful about it because I've been told that I should. 
pathological models, one would include uh, addiction, another pathological is compulsivity, another pathological is impulsivity. And each of those models makes very different predictions about what the brain does, what the behavior looks like and how those behaviors are maintained. And it's very important. So some people say, it doesn't matter what you call it as long as people are getting help. That drives me crazy. What you call it determines how you help. It couldn't be more important. <laughs> so among the different pathological models of understanding someone's report that they have a porn problem, um, addiction models have the highest threshold by far. So for example, an addiction model requires that you have withdrawal. When you start to abstain, we now have a study showing that doesn't happen. It requires that you transition from experiencing pleasure from the sexual stimulation uh, to experiencing a reduction of negative affect. So from an impulsive to a compulsive presentation, that's never been demonstrated. As far as I know, it's never even been tested. Uh, so there's just no evidence for that. And uh, the other models, uh, compulsivity and impulsivity, the, the shorthand is <laughs> impulsive behaviors, are that feels good. That looks like fun. I'm going to do it right now. I'm not even going to think about the consequences. I'm going to pursue it. Compulsivity is I'm going to do this. I do it every day at this time because I have these negative feelings in me and this helps me distract from them, reduce them in some sense. That's like obsessive compulsive disorder is how most people know those kind of behaviors. So it's like we wash our hands many times because we're not convinced that the germs are off them. We feel a little anxious about it. And that washing kind of helps reduce our negative feelings. And that just hasn't really been demonstrated either with pornography viewing. So it's, it's very tough because a lot of the scientists who are working in this space will say, you know, we looked at people who had porn problems and their brain became active in the same way, you know, that an addict does. And we're like, right, but that's also the same way as an impulsive person, which is also the same way as a high sex drive person. So what we're doing when we're testing models is you want to find the key test, the one that differentiates and says, okay, it can be this, it can't be that. It's like those old, if you did the logic puzzles in you know, grade school, grammar school, where you're like, if John has this and Susie has that, which one's the plumber? <laughs> you know, and you kind of go through, it's that same kind of puzzle. And so when they say like brain areas that are active are the same as those in addictions, it's almost meaningless. Like it just doesn't help us differentiate many models. That's true of most of these models. So it's frustrating to hear people make those comparisons because I just think, uh, <laughs> not really, you know, um, you need a lot more evidence to call something an addiction and we're just nowhere near that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's not like I try to make a habit out of having this conversation with people, but, you know, but I do get into a lot, you know, because of my line of work. Right. And so people, you know, they, they say, oh, well, what about my friend who, uh, you know, who just can't stop, you know, masturbating? And and, you know, my first question is, well, that that's kind of relative. Right. Like like if they think that they that they masturbate to pornography too much. Right. Like what's too much who's to say that like that's the first question and then the second question is like well if you believe that this is a pornography addiction like have you yet ruled out the possibility that there could be another you know, do they do they drink a lot and they after they're drunk then they they turn on the porn right like that there are so many other factors that could contribute to this that mm -hmm. i think it's it's kind of almost in vogue and fashionable for people to just reach for the because it's right there it's everywhere you look now um you know and it drives me nuts to see like things that i think we can all just like empirically say like porn does not do the same thing to the brain 
that methamphetamine does right or something like that because that's the line right it's like oh well porn is the new drug it's addictive like a drug and you can get hooked on it right and like that kind of like reefer madness-esque propaganda is i mean it's kind of obviously propaganda the moment you start to question it i mean we can you know firmly say that no um that is not going to happen. And, and you're, that's not how your brain is going to respond. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this kind of morphed from the, it was very much a church thing. So when you see somebody talking about, you know, the ails of pornography, it was a pornography addiction. It was it started in the church and particularly the Latter-day Saints church. Then it grew up into kind of this manosphere movement, you know, a lot of the men's movements online. Um, and I personally criticize those a lot. I wish they were a lot healthier. Every time I kind of step foot into a men's space online, it is telling me something bonkers. Like you need to stop eating vegetables and you need to eat nothing but steak for the rest of your life and buy my supplements. And you need to stop masturbating and cut out all pornography. And, and it's like, you, you know, you get this the steaks either raw meat. That's very important. Yeah, right. It has to absolutely, you know, you can't even cook it. And like, yeah, it's just, it, it, it gets you know, it, 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 it's almost like there's trolls making this up, right? Like they're just, all right, well, let's just have fun and see what we can get people to do mm-hmm. like crazy stuff. And since they're buying our supplements, we're going to get paid the whole time anyway. What does that look like now? Because you do see it in, you know, men's fitness communities where guys are going to just, Hey, I just want to get healthier. You know, maybe I got a few extra pounds. Hey, I put on like 20 pounds in 2020 when everything locked down, not ashamed to admit it. I burned it off. Thankfully with hard work in the gym and eating vegetables, but, you know, a lot of guys go in for that. And then next thing they know, they're, they're in, you know, a NoFap or a Reboot group. Uh, do you want to explain to us a little bit about what NoFap and Reboot is for people who've never heard of any of this? Sure. Uh, so I'm going to take this opportunity to do a little side debunk. So when you're sexually mm-hmm. aroused, it suppresses ghrelin, uh, which is uh, commonly known as a hunger hormone. So uh, if you want to lose weight, one way it may be to have kind of like a sexual tension floating around a lot because it suppresses your hunger, but no one's explored that yet. As far as I know, I think they should. <laughs> this funny. is your cue, researchers. Yeah. Make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> so these groups are interesting. They have some really unique features that don't make them exactly like a cult. They don't make them exactly like other extremist groups. They're definitely not a mental health group. Uh, And so part of the struggle has been trying to understand, like, how do we classify or examine these groups? And broadly, uh, these are groups that are usually run by coaches. The coaches usually describe their qualifications as personal experience. So they don't have any training in mental health. Typically, they say, well, I went through it so I can teach you. And Uh, That broad coaching strategy has been studied pretty extensively in psychology, and there are lots of problems with it, as you might imagine. They tend to overstep their boundaries a lot, you know, having input on mental health issues that they're really not qualified to comment on. And when you go to a coach, you're not protected in any way. You don't have HIPAA protections, confidentiality. They can talk about you. They can use your photo. um, And you've got no recourse. You get hurt. That's on you. So they're very different in terms of the protections available for the public, and that's important to know. And because they're going from their own experience, you know, they're really uh, unable to be questioned. So they say, this is the way to do it. And they control their environment and their uh, forums. Uh, many of them have their own specific websites where they have forums. 
they make money different ways. So some have Patreon accounts, uh, some take direct donations directly into their website. Some run treatment groups uh, where they're taking payment to help treat a medical disorder. Generally speaking, that's illegal. If they're making claims to treat erectile dysfunction, for example, and they're not a medical professional, they can um, be legal consequences uh, for making those kind of representations, but they often do it anyway, uh, which is part of why we're concerned. And they bring these folks in. Uh, typically, the crowd, as we've studied them from the rebooters and the NOFAP, are very young. So wow. not everyone, you know, it, it does vary. But the one of the problems we had in some of our research is as we're doing these scrapes and you know, all our research has to be approved by ethics boards that are overseen at the federal level, we can't study kids. And so we had to say, how are we going to get these youth out of our data set? Because we're not allowed to have them in there. And yet, you know, we'd be scrolling through no fat posts and like, I'm 11 years old. You know, I just wow. discovered I have a porn addiction. I'm 12. And I'm like, you do not have a porn addiction. And, and, and if I'm not mistaken, you, like I've seen your tweets recently and this, sorry, this just, it, it, it infuriates me, but there are like 16 year olds talking about self-harm because they fear that they're going to relapse and watch pornography again, yeah. youths under the age of 18. So these people are grown adults who have like a reboot forum or a place on, I, I'm assuming Reddit or some other channel like that, mm -hmm. where they tell people, hey, we're going to teach you how to break your pornography addiction once and for all. So not only are they making like the diagnosis, they're selling you the cure at the exact same time. And, and they've basically predated kids and said, okay, you're addicted. So, you know, give me the money or whatever. And, and there's a shame component involved, right? Absolutely. That's one of the things they often claim is, you know, this is not shaming. We're sex positive and our data, which I can get into more, say they're sex negative and it's, it is shaming. It does create an increased shame over time as well as anger over time. And so it's kind of a twilight zone, you know, it's everything that they claim our evidence really seems to show the opposite. And that's a huge public health concern because not only are they making these false medical claims in some cases, but they're doing this to youth. And they go explicitly on national media and say, we're here for kids. And I'm thinking, you know, everyone else who studies this thinks that bringing children online and teaching them to post about their personal sexual habits and the shape of their penis is oh, a wow. really bad boundary violation. And they should not be taught to do that uh, to anyone online. And, you know, we see some evidence of this in some of these forums where these youth are uh, saying, you know, I'm 15, uh, you know, this is what my penis is doing. I'm trying to have sex with my 17 year old girlfriend and it's not working. And I'm thinking, oh man, I really wish you weren't posting this on here. And someone comes into the forum and says, Hey, message me. I'm thinking, who is this? I have no idea who this person is. You know, the, the forum doesn't know. And I think there's a huge issue there. And so it, it kind of, it would be humorous if it wasn't for the risk, you know, they claim to be so worried about pornography and something like that happening in pornography forums, but it's happening in the anti-porn forums, you know, where these youth are going on seeking information that is inaccurate about medical issues and then being contacted about this personal sexual information they've posted that they're being told they should post. It, I can't imagine being in that setting as a kid and trying to understand what I'm supposed to be doing and what's going on. And I, I cringe to think what kind of stories we're going to get from this down the road, but that's part of why we're trying to study it now and trying to cut that off before things get worse.
Yeah, and and you just uh, published was yesterday was published. Uh, you just published a paper, a new research paper on this, and just a, a quick, you know, however long you want, you know, overview of of what that paper entails. Is is that was that it that you just described? That is definitely some of what inspired it. That. Mm-hmm. Basically, we'd seen a series of qualitative papers, and so qualitative usually just refers to without numbers. So that includes things like interview studies, focus groups, reading posts, um, describing things you're seeing in videos, whereas quantitative studies usually are more hypothesis-driven. So we make a specific proposal about how variables relate, and then we go out to measure those specific things. So there had been a number of qualitative studies around Reboot and NoFap, and they'd just consistently said there were all kinds of problems. They described anti-Semitism in the forums. They described a lot of misogyny. That was a very common theme. Uh, They described that these were more masculinity challenges than they were treatments where guys are kind of beating their chest, um, you know, around how long they can abstain. In fact, that was uh, the founding of NoFap was actually NoFap Army, and they would have NoFap war, uh, where war would periodically break out. And they would uh, go into a forum where they would put them on in different army barracks. And when you masturbated, you had to say, I was KIA, I was killed in action. And they would give the moderators, you know, titles like general and admiral. And so they literally put it in the context of war. (laughs) Wow. Obviously kind of violent uh, clash. And uh, so they would, they would kind of set it up in that way. And we said, this, doesn't seem like a good strategy for a non-shaming <laughs> supportive environment. If you're like, oh, you failed. Uh, you know, you've let everyone on your team down. Oh, wow. Here are these people to judge you <laughs> for what you've done. And so unsurprisingly, uh, of some of the hypotheses we made that we were testing were these claims that the more engaged you were with a reboot and nofap forums that you would see improvements in your erectile dysfunction. We found the opposite. That is the more people were involved, the worse their erectile functioning. Uh, Most important to me actually were symptoms of depression and anxiety. So I believe a lot of people who think they have a porn addiction actually suffer from depression. There's a lot of evidence suggesting that's the case. And the more involved people were in the reboot NoFap forums, the worse their depression symptoms were. And that's to me a tremendous concern. Um, probably more than anything else we found that really worries me. Uh, I really want people to get appropriate care. And so if that's, if depression is their true underlying problem or anxiety is their true underlying problem, and they go to this forum that says, no, 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 just, it's just porn. And they tell you over and over, you know, the reboot coaches just quit porn. If you just quit porn, everything will be okay. And, and they will say like, oh, we don't make those claims. They explicitly make those claims and we quote them in the paper because I'm tired of them saying they don't say these things. <laughs> they definitely do. And they they promise them, yeah, if you just quit this one thing, you'll be cured. And that's not the case. Depression doesn't work like that. Anxiety disorders don't work like that. Um, one of the other uh, unique findings from the paper was a lot of the studies in the past on people who identify as pornography addicts found that a strong predictor of that identity was a religious or a conservative upbringing. So this is that idea, like, I don't really watch that much porn, but the porn I do watch, I feel horrible about. You know, I've been told by my partner or my church or my family that it's shameful to do that or look at those things. And uh, so that had long been the assumption was most people who are identifying as porn addicts had this, cons- this conservative upbringing, 
And uh, NOFAP especially would say, well, we're a non-religious organization, so that's not possible. We have real addiction. Uh, and so I said, well, I, it does seem to be the case. They have far lower religiosity than some other groups that have been measured in the past. But what most strongly predicted their identification as an addict was narcissism. Oh, wow. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> and narcissism is also strongly related to sex addiction identity. So that's not terribly surprising. But I have to thank another research group. I don't study narcissism. And it was literally like we were getting ready to submit our uh, project for ethics review. And they said, we're looking at this group and we're finding narcissism is a huge predictor. You might want to add it. And so I tell them, thank you, <laughs> because I was so glad we measured that. It ended up being the strongest predictor. Oh, wow. Now. Wow. So now that's, we're doing incredible. Yeah, we're trying to understand what exactly that means. And what it seems is these guys in the NoFap community um, have a particular type of narcissism, a vulnerable narcissism, where they say, you know, I'm elite, I'm amazing, I have special qualities, but bad things are happening to me because of those other people, because of the pornography industry, because of the scientists who are lying, because of women who are trying to tempt me and bring me down none of those are me. It's all these other people. And because of that, they also have a lot of conspiracy beliefs. And you know, if that's the dynamic that's going on, that's a whole different kind of problem <laughs> than, than pornography and potentially even depression. So uh, th that is an effect we're still kind of working to understand. And it looks like there are going to be at least two other labs that are probably going to publish something partially replicating and extending some of those findings in the near future, I hope, because we just got lucky. They tipped me off and then we happened to publish before them. I felt bad <laughs> for getting their scoop a little bit, but, uh, but I was glad to see we're replicating some of that work. It looks like. Yeah. I mean, Hey, the more that gets out there, I mean, I think a lot of people don't understand. So just a brief, um, you know, somebody can publish a study, but you know, the importance is that it is peer reviewed. And, you know, if, if, you know, there's enough funding to where, you know, enough studies can be done that eventually a scientific consensus can be reached. But I think a lot of people in the internet age think, well, oh, I just, I found a study and that says yeah. this thing that I want to believe. So I'm good. And so, yeah, there's, there's kind of more of a whole process that, you know, because it, it's easy for one study to be wrong. And there's a lot of stuff that you might not know, or it might not have covered. And it might have a lot of limitations. So, you know, it's best to, to have all of that research um, come together. I have noticed that, that these kind of organizations, the new organizations, and I've studied the manosphere in uh, the manosphere that I say loosely. So kind of very red pill, black pill, incel groups, and then also the hyper-masculine guys who are you know, um, ordering testosterone online and, and that whole like situation that's going on. Um, another thing that, that, that happens. So I, I kind of encountered your research with um, David Lay's right at a like very fortuitous auspicious moment. So what happened is a friend of mine called me and he had just gotten into a relationship with a new girlfriend who is controlling very conspiratorial, believes every single conspiracy theory, won't let him out of the house, controls his, monitors his phone conversations. So it was a miracle that he was able to call me, but it sounded like a hostage video. He was like, <laughs> I have a pornography addiction. You know, I just can't stop. And so he's not particularly a religious person. Um, but right at that same time, unfortunately, the Atlanta shooting happened. 
And so it's like I had discovered all this research. The massage parlor shooting happens where the, the guy is talking about the, the pornography addiction. Right. And he was, uh, you know, very evangelical or raised in an evangelical household. And then you have this non-religious person saying the same thing. And to me, my big takeaway was that it seems like there's a, an external social force or sometimes maybe even internal where people believe um, you know, I am doing this and it is morally wrong or it is too much, even if they don't really have a guide for how much is too much. You'd be surprised how many of my friends come to me and they're saying, you know, I'm in my third year of my relationship and we have sex only once a week. And that is nowhere near enough. And I'm like, do you know what the average is? Like, I mean, you're doing good. You know, you're doing pretty good. Yeah. What do you say to the people who feel like, who feel like, I mean, you don't want to tell somebody, you know, no, you're just wrong, you know, but, but people who feel like, well, what about my, my problem that I'm having, you know, Since, mm-hmm. I mean, you, you said categorically porn is not addictive. What is the alternatives that it could be? We they- have patients present with this complaint all the time and we don't tell them get out, <laughs> you know, we don't say we can't help you. We work to understand in their particular case what the background and issue might be. So one possibility is kind of what you described, that is it's an education issue. They don't really know what is normal or common or how sexuality tends to work. So one of the things uh, we encounter a lot with couples is sounds like maybe what you're describing is men tend to use masturbation and pornography with masturbation in a compensatory manner and women tend to use it in a more excitatory manner. So what that means is as sexual frequency decreases in a relationship, men are more likely to maintain the same uh, orgasm output by increasing their masturbation. Uh, Women tend not to do that. So if they're masturbating more, they're also having more sex. Uh, So they uh, more kind of compounds (laughs) for women. And so if that's the case with guys and they say, you know, I'm masturbating in my relationship and I feel like I shouldn't be, I said, well, how, how often would you like to be having sex? And I said, well, three, four, five times a week, but she doesn't want that. I said, okay, well then masturbation may be a good strategy. You know, maybe you can talk about how to manage your higher drive because you just have a discrepancy there that you need to work out. That's more of an educational or a couples therapy kind of approach. Another possibility um, is that they are using masturbation to avoid dealing with things that are depressing or anxiety provoking to them. And so it's not the, the pornography per se, it could be any behavior. They could be training for a triathlon. So I don't have to be home and deal with home situation. that makes me anxious. You know, generally, uh, you know, conditioning is a good thing. It's very healthy, but maybe not if we're using it to avoid dealing with things. Uh, and so pornography can take that place as any behavior could. And so we may say in that case, like, are you depressed? You know, are you having problems with anxiety? Uh, And if we can identify what the underlying issue is, we don't focus on reducing the pornography viewing that may naturally decrease as we address the actual underlying issue. Uh, But we focus on that, the real diagnosis. So for example, if that's uh, underlying depression, we say, where's that coming from? You know, how intense is it? What has that trajectory been like is, you know, maybe pornography is the latest coping, but you were using something different when you were younger and couldn't get access to that computer by yourself. <laughs> so it's uh, it's really thinking functionally when you see someone present with that complaint 
you know, what role is this pornography having in their life and how might that clue us in as to how we help? So absolutely, we don't uh, think people are lying. Um, You know, generally there's no secondary gain there that, you know, they don't get anything for saying they have a porn problem. They're really struggling and they don't understand why this is happening. So our goal is to try and help them fit that into a model for them, you know, what fits the the disorder they're having, if there is an underlying disorder or the kind of counseling issue they may have or educational issue. Excellent. Excellent. And I feel like there's a pertinent thing that I need to mention here, because when a lot of people heard you say, you know, that you might be having, you know, like a relationship problem or something that, you know, could could receive counseling. (laughs) It is important that we say that there kind of has grown up a I don't know, business class of kind of unscrupulous counselors who are catering to this idea, right? Mm -hmm. So you might go to a therapist who is, you know, very much wanting to treat pornography addiction. So it is possible to get that. And what should somebody do under those circumstances? Say they do say, all right, I'm, I'm having some sexual problems and they call, they call up a, a psychotherapist or, or, or therapist. And they, then the person says, well, it's clear you have a pornography addiction. And since we know that that's clearly not true, what should they do next? Is there somebody specific they should look for? So the, by way of a little bit of background, the training in that specific area to get a certified sex addiction therapist or a CSAT license is extraordinarily expensive. So the people who go through that training, you can imagine they're really going to advocate for it because they paid a lot of money for that and they, they want to use it. They want to get their money's worth out of this training that they attended. Um, but to be clear, a number of studies uh, have concluded that there's no evidence basis for those treatments. That is people who claim to be treating pornography addiction, the treatments that they're using, including those trainings are not supported by science. Um, Now you might spontaneously get better. So in a study that followed people who identified as sex addicts over five years, 100% of them without intervention spontaneously reported they no longer had it five years later when they asked. So there is there is some argument to be made for, you know, if you are distressed, there's there's a good chance if it's really just that kind of sexual behavior, it may just go away. Um, it, but if you- it, it reminds me of uh, I think Lance Dotus, I, I read his book on the on the addiction uh, and he I think he compared the AA recovery rates with spontaneous remission of alcoholics. Yeah. And I think the spontaneous remission was about three percent. high. So like the chances were truly that. I mean, I know that's grim and, and I've got a lot of friends in AA and I respect them and I respect uh, whatever it takes to, to get better and recover from drug or alcohol addiction. Do it. You know, whatever works for you is my philosophy. But yeah, I mean, I think it, scientifically speaking, the statistics, more people, you know, got better doing nothing, you know? So that does happen though, that people do have a problem and then it just goes away. I wouldn't bank on that though. (laughs) Yeah. It's one of those. So you will hear stories where people say, you know, oh, but it helped me. I got better. And I think, well, maybe like the evidence basis isn't there. There's no science supporting that it's effective. We now have published some science suggesting that those kind of interventions that focus on abstinence and try and get you to stop sexual behaviors appear to backfire. Uh, they appear to get worse so that we didn't test the CSAT intervention to be clear, but that's a common type of strategy that they would use. So if you're seeing someone who uses those kind of approaches, there is a risk uh, that is relatively high, I would say that you will get worse with them. 
so there is uh, ASECT, um, the American Association for Sex Educators and Sex Therapists. I think I got it right. They have a specific training in sexuality and they have a list you can search online for people that are available in your state. And it could be that you go to this sex therapist and they tell you, this is not a sex issue. You have depression, <laughs> you know, or this is not a sex issue. You have anxiety. So they may even refer you out on that basis. And that is, that may absolutely be the right thing to do to say, you know, this is not my specialty actually. And maybe they can also help with depression, but <laughs> Uh, but you're much better off with someone who knows how to differentially diagnose whatever you're actually struggling with. Okay. Yes. Yes. One more quick statement. Uh, you know, I do wonder because there is this, um, you know, this kind of theme uh, that one more quick statement, and then we'll get into the last little section. Uh, and so this theme of, uh, well, you're having these young men in their twenties and they're watching pornography and they are having erectile dysfunction and what else could it be besides the pornography right and but at the same time you know we do have rising anxiety and mental health rates and and depression rates so like i think it's it's a little hasty to just you know and obviously the research has has disproven the the porn theory but you know i think it's hasty that people just jumped to porn and we kind of almost reflexively do that don't we you know you know sex is kind of a thing that even even the most sex positive of us we're kind of there's there's that I don't know, underlying assumption that maybe, it could come. Maybe. Yeah. yeah, right. It could be problematic of some sort. You know, it's just that whole, uh, I don't know, Protestant work ethic, you know, where any fun that you're having is, you know, got to be bad somehow. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the last section I wanted to cover is, you know, this has real world consequences. Um, you know, uh, we're speaking actually right after the Kinsey Institute was defunded. And that is a huge blow to sex research and also in a way relationships research, because this kind of all ties together. You know, you can you can get things from sex research and, and, and relationships research and, and look at them and get a better, clearer picture of who we are to understand ourselves as human beings. Um, and I know that fight the new drug. Uh, some of the, the, you know, the high ranking officials or the people who have run these organizations have also contributed to anti-LGBTQ legislation and other, other types of legislation. And it's no secret that the big churches want to severely restrict women's health care. So to me, it's happening right in this backdrop of just last year, you know, the, the devastating decision, um, you know, Dobbs versus Jackson, you know, uh, that overturned Roe v. Wade. That was huge. Um, do you think that a lot of this stuff is a backlash from the sexual revolution and um you know that it's it's, it's more of an not an anti-porn thing but like just that's one component of a larger anti-sex push it's interesting these and, I, and anti-woman and anti-woman too yeah <laughs> i graduated in 2007 from my phd program and these things really just seem to have cycles that come and go. And so on the one hand, obviously Roe versus Wade, terrible loss for women's rights. On the other hand, one of the fastest changing community values that's ever been sampled is LGBT marriage. That is more people more rapidly became accepting of gay marriage than any kind of assessed cultural attitude in history. <laughs> so uh, you know, the culture is making movements kind of both directions at all times. And 
we see these uh, surge in various ways. So when I was a graduate student at the Kinsey Institute, I worked in a lab for seven years where they claimed children were molested. Uh, we never tested children. I was there. I can tell you that is not true. Um, there's some historical claims as well around that. And a woman that actually made and created those allegations ended up taking them to court and lost so these things were known to not have happened, but the conspiracies continued to get repeated, including you know, from people who want to just shut them down for their own reasons. And so you know, there are these kind of things going both directions. I mentioned when I was a student, uh, there were four grants brought up before Congress for defunding. All four of them were sexuality grants, one of which I was working on at the Kinsey Institute. So you know, to me, I was like, here we go again. <laughs> it's like, what are they going to try this time? You know, that particular time, congressional aides had searched the grant databases for particular words they hate uh, to try and bring these things up. And uh, at that time, we kept the grant by one vote in Congress. Our own congressman voted against us to keep that grant because Indiana is very conservative. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we faced these challenges before. And I think it's important for these groups to know that we're not going anywhere. And in the course of my work, you know, I've, I've been threatened with death. I've you know, had all kinds of doxing. I had a DDoS attack on my <laughs> cheesy website, which I don't do much with, but um, you know, they took that down for a while. You've already done it all. We're not going anywhere. So I think to me, that's the message I would echo back is, yeah, we understand that you're gonna continue these attacks, uh, that these are, uh, cyclical. Sometimes you have more and less power in Congress to come after us. Uh, but man, scientists are nothing if not patient. It makes me think of that, uh, what Neil deGrasse Tyson, I think, line, uh, you know, uh, science is true, whether you believe it in or not. So, you know, I mean, the truth is still going to be there. You know, uh, you know, the next generation can stop believing it, but it's still true. And uh, I think that's kind of a powerful and enduring statement. This is, I mean, it's especially frightening for me with what's going on in Florida. And I won't get too far into the political weeds, but with, you know, our governor is, I think he, he's already said that we're getting rid of the SAT and basically the, the college preparation exams for high school students. And now they're kicking around, well, we're going to make it a Christian based test that you take now. And I'm like, you know, I mean, that was in the, on the front of the newspaper, you know, I mean, it's, it's, so it's, they were talking about that and it's, it's uh, pretty legit. So hopefully they can't make that happen. I'm not sure, but they have hundred percent of government and just like Indiana has, you know what I mean? They have, um, it's a very conservative state and, you know, all of this stuff, the education is being assaulted, um, especially, but especially sex education. And it just reminds me of the, the use we see down here of oh, whenever it's something I don't like, just attach the word pedophile to it. And yeah. you know, right. And like it hits everybody it needs to hit. And then, and you can kind of get, get railroad through whatever crazy that you want. Um, so I guess the last, last thing is how do we fight back? What do we do? Um, you know, laypersons, you know, not somebody who's in the research field, like what can we do? People who follow this channel, the people who follow this Substack, who have um, subscribed to sexography and those people who watch this, like what can we take away from this to make sure that sexual health and sexual research are prioritized in the future? And then after that, feel free to just let me know whatever research people you think people should <laughs> check out when they get done watching this video. Sure. Um, so there are 
the most concrete things that it seems like we can do are to pre-bunk. So there's been a lot of research on conspiracy theories, which are kind of related to a lot of these sex issues we're studying. And I say that because once people get these ideas in their head, it's a rare person who you mentioned going back and changing your article. Very few people will do that. You know, they're not going to think, oh, there's new evidence. What does this mean to what I used to think? And and the update is at the top of the article. So the first thing you open the article, you get the photo and underneath it, the very first thing you see is update. I was wrong. (laughs) Here's what the truth says. Go see Nicole Prowse's Twitter handle, you know, and there you go. Go ahead. Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. So, you know, what we've seen from data, people who study things like conspiratorial beliefs is once those beliefs are, are believed, they're almost impossible to dislodge. Like the interventions to try and do that are just failing, failing, failing. Like education doesn't help. Uh, because that just polarizes, you know, they sink into their own belief, uh, you do cognitive dissonance, they pull more into their own belief, you know, everything just seems to backfire that we're trying. So as far as the information is concerned, pre-bunking really seems like the most effective thing to do. And so in that case, what I would say is if you see someone coming on information or like, oh, I read this thing, don't be the wallflower and say, oh, well, that's kind of ridiculous, but I'm not going to say anything. That's the time to speak. That's, are you sure? Where did you read that? You know, is that a good source? And, uh, you know, the skill to develop here is more of a motivational interviewing skill. So that's kind of helping people discover this for themselves, the confrontational name calling, you know, um, you idiot kind of statements are not helpful. Um, but to speak out very clearly when people are first encountering that information to help them challenge their belief or their newly encountered belief. And then for those that already have that belief, you know, you may not be able to be very effective with them. And so it's not beating your head against the brick wall, frankly, in some cases, uh, so I don't expect like the, the study that we just published, no one in the NoFap group is going to change their mind because of that study. I am under no delusions. They're, they're already in it. They believe it. And we can't dislodge those beliefs from, from true believers. Uh, so that's one is just kind of the pre-bunking and helping us with pre-bunking um, as best you can. The others can be more concrete. So that is when we have issues like the Kinsey Institute defunding representative suite that introduced that bill. Apparently, there's still a vote that has to ratify this in April or something. It's quite a ways off. Pick up the freaking phone, call the rep and say, that's not true. I don't support this. You're not her uh, constituent. You have family that that are. <laughs> you have uh, you know, somebody who can reach out. And it may seem uh, parochial almost like, oh, I'm going to be active and contact my representative. Yeah, that's exactly what we need because Old people school. think that, yeah, they can just railroad over because all they're hearing is the constituents that have millions of dollars in uh, being able to legislate whatever they want. You know, so one of the uh, organizations that fund some of this pornography addiction claims, you know, they got 5.1 million in donations in 2019. You know, last I looked at their IRS statements, I'm a scientist. I don't have a $5.1 million PR budget to go lobbying right. legislation. Right. We have numbers though. 
Right. And we've got to use the voice and use that power. So when you see something online, don't just tweet it, pick up the phone. Don't just tweet it, write the email, you know, be sure you follow through when stuff like this happens. They need to hear those voices because as far as they're concerned, they're just getting money from this one group that, that has money to spare and is going to get their agenda through if people don't speak up. So I'm idealistic in that sense. I think we can still you know, have an impact uh, speaking to our legislators and making sure that they understand there are people who don't believe that and who don't want that to happen. So I've already contacted Representative Sweet and let her know exactly what I think about her claims that the Institute where I was trained molests children <laughs> and that that is not true and I don't support her. Uh, so I hope others will do the same and those in similar cases. That is, don't just be a Twitter activist, you know, take mm-hmm. the extra step to contact the appropriate person and, and you know, maybe you're the person who digs that person up and says, hey, you know, for this issue, call so-and-so. I found their contact information appropriately. Obviously, we don't want to dox or, you know, create harassment problems, but. The office. Um, call their call their office. <laughs> yeah. You exactly. know. Yes. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, appropriately advocate on behalf of these issues. We, we need those voices because we don't have those uh, church budgets. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, those mega, mega church budgets as well. Just uh, two real quick things from my perspective. And, you know, these are, you know, 100% not backed by the research that, that you've got. Um, I worked in, in politics, believe it or not, for about 10 okay. years before I started writing boots on the ground politics. So, you know, in uh, all I over this country. Played to my, played to my crowd accidentally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, no, I definitely understand that there is a lot that you can do in person that and and online has its place you know getting a message out has its place but there's so much that we can do in person with uh with people and in my personal life whenever i encounter somebody who has a very wonky kind of out there belief i've kind of adopted the stance that it's not the best to tell them that they're wrong but it's to demonstrate why your lifestyle might be preferable and let them make that choice, you know? And so I've made some dietary changes over the last few years. And, you know, it's much easier to talk to somebody when they've come to you and said, man, you're looking great these days. How did you do that? Right. Then you can say, okay, well, this is the, this is the case, you know? And I think that's a better way to um, to start those kinds of conversations when somebody is down deep in that rabbit hole and supposing they haven't cut you off, you know, or something like that. Um, give me one second. I have a dog crisis going on. <laughs> you can, you can, I'm sorry for keeping you so long. <laughs> and then you can, all right. Okay. So, um, all right, Nicole, Dr. Prousey, um, is there any research you'd like to tell us about that uh, that you want people to go check out? The research I'm most excited about that's coming up is on postorgasmic illness syndrome. We had just started recruitment when COVID hit, and because of my going back to UCLA, my job change, it took even longer. We're finally getting that lab set back up. We're going to be able to do the study. This is a huge study on orgasm physiology in men because postorgasmic illness syndrome primarily affects men. Um, postorgasmic illness syndrome, for those who don't know, because it is a rare disorder, uh, are primarily guys who experience flu-like symptoms for two to seven days after every climax, no matter how they experience it. Obviously something we want to get to the bottom of. <laughs> we have a theory about how and why that works. 
But to study that, we need some people who have this problem and some guys who don't. And we need them to come into the laboratory and to masturbate while we record a whole variety of different physiological indicators to help the guys who are suffering and understand what their issues may be uh, and how we could help. But in the course of that, we're going to get a huge uh, corpus of healthy guys to just understand things about inflammatory cytokines that are previously unknown, sympathetic nervous system uh, tone over the course of the sexual response that are currently unknown. I'm really excited about those data. And you do have to be in Los Angeles to <laughs> do this study. But if you want to help hype, this is coming and we're going to know so much more about Climax uh, to starting guys, but I'm always looking out for the ladies. You know? <laughs> so nice, we're, nice. Uh, we're planning that as well. We've already done some piloting in women and we're planning on a follow-up, uh, but absolutely. If you know folks in the area, we need people who are affected as well as those who are not experiencing problems and who are brave enough to <laughs> come in and do our lab study. We will pay you. Hey, I, I live in Orlando, but I was born and raised in LA. And so I have no problem taking a quick month long vacation, sightseeing my old neighborhoods and being in your control group. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. And um, one last thing, I trust you're going to send me the, uh, you know, all the documentation for all of the studies you mentioned, or at least the ones that are most important. Um, so I can include those in the show notes. So that way, anybody who's listening, anybody who's watching, whether they're doing the audio or the video right there below, they can find all of this information and they can read it for themselves. Absolutely. And if folks haven't stumbled across yet, there's something called ResearchGate that a lot of scientists are on. If you get on that, uh, we are very excited to send you copies of our science. So don't, don't you don't ever need to pay for it. <laughs> Just email us, contact us on ResearchGate and we can easily hit a button and we're allowed to send you individual copies of our research. So if you ever see something of mine that you can't get access to, hook me on ResearchGate, take me two seconds, I'll send it your way. You are the best. Quick question though. I have been struggling for the past year to get a ResearchGate account because it says my uh, email is not from an institution that they accept. Is there a way that people can get around that or what? what how does that so a lot of people have used historical institutional accounts. So when you mm -hmm. finish, graduate from school, a lot of people are allowed to keep their email address or some alumni version of it. Generally, I, I don't work for ResearchGate, so I'm not sure what all they count, but something with the .edu. Okay. okay. Um, but frankly, even if somebody were to you know contact me via Twitter, direct messages, that's part of why I leave my messages open is you know our our uh, bread and butter as scientists is citations we want people to read what we're doing you know <laughs> we don't want to just read it for ourselves <laughs> we it, it needs to get out so uh, generally if you ask me for a paper i'm going to send it to you it's just researchgate is the fastest easiest way for me to do that but i send people papers all the time via email direct messaging all that Excellent. Excellent. So uh, thank you again for coming on to the science of sex, uh, Dr. Prousey, and we hope to see you again sometime in the future, though I know you get a pretty busy schedule. Thanks for having me on, and I really appreciate the assistance in disseminating. This is one of the challenges with science, you know, is having these long form enough to talk through the, the nuance and well in this case and not in the other case. So I appreciate the chance to talk about it.